things I had to take was journalism. And when you studied journalism, even in an introductory class, one of the things you learned was the five W's and an H. How many of you have ever heard of that? A few. The five W's and an H. It's the formula for any good news story. Early on in your story, you need to address who, what, when, where, why, five W's and an H. Not necessarily in that order, and we won't necessarily go in that order this morning, but in order to just have a framework for understanding this passage and what's going on here, and we have been served extraordinarily well the last two weeks by Mike West and by Scott Stangley. If you were not here and you didn't listen to those messages, I urge you to go on the website and do that. Can't rehash all of that. But the first W, by the way, before I get into that, I want to make you aware <coughs> that there are on the back table a number of copies of this article by a guy named Nick Ripkin. Nick Ripkin wrote a book called The Insanity of God, which was made into a movie, which was shown in theaters all over the place this past Tuesday. It was one of those one-night-only deals. I don't know, did anybody get a chance to see that? Have you seen trailers for it? Okay. Check the trailer out. I don't know whether there will be other opportunities to see it. Uh, the nearest place to hear where it was showing was Hazlitt. We, did, we elected not to go. But um, the article is an eerie, unacceptable silence. <clears throat> and it's the silence of the church concerning what's going on all over the world, which is in many ways connected to what went on in this passage which we just read about Stephen. He was, he's commonly called the first martyr in the Christian church, and that's true. However, understand that the word martyr originally meant simply witness. So in this passage, we have in verse 56, and the witnesses laid down their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. Same word, the martyrs, the witnesses. So Stephen was a martyr because he was a witness. And because he wouldn't change his story and wouldn't back down, he became the first martyr to lose his life in the course of bearing witness. So the who question is most obviously Stephen, the Greek-speaking Jew who appears kind of suddenly in the narrative here. Where, where does Stephen come from? What do we know about Stephen? Do we know anything about his ancestry? Do we know what tribe he belonged to? We really don't know anything about him except that he was a Greek-speaking Jew, part of the synagogue of the freedmen, and he was chosen as one of the first deacons in the church. So he appears, as it were, out of nowhere, and kind of flashes across the sky of the church early in its history, like, almost like a meteor, and then flames out when, he's, when his life is taken by this mob who stoned him. So here's Stephen. He's described as of good repute, full of the spirit and of wisdom, full of faith, was that unique to Stephen? It shouldn't be because all those things are things that 
believers are promised in other places in Scripture. You ask God for wisdom, you ask for the Spirit, and He gladly gives it. So Stephen's an extraordinary, ordinary Christian. And God did extraordinary things through him. Otherwise, like I said, we know very little about him. Uh, go back a couple weeks to the sermon by Mike West and you'll learn, <coughs> learn a bit more. And if you, if you did your homework, you know that Stephen had an amazing grasp of Old Testament history and an amazing ability to summarize it and encapsulate it. And encapsulate it. And in the space of 50-some verses, he pretty much tells the story of the Old Testament. The who is Stephen. The who is also the Sanhedrin, the ruling council of the Jewish nation. Those who were opposed to the gospel from the start and who, by threats and imprisonments and beatings, as we've seen, opposed the spreading of this message. And they were increasingly frustrated by their inability to do this. So we see early on, they just warn the apostles not to speak any longer in the name of Jesus. When that doesn't work, they beat them. And when that doesn't work, they call Stephen in and they kill him. They murder him in cold blood. But they could not restrain the spread of the message. These council members were primarily members of the, Sanhed of the Sadducees who were deniers of the resurrection. Therefore, when Stephen affirms at the end of his message to them that Jesus is still alive, that's one of the things that enrages them so because they said there's no such thing. Nobody comes back from the dead. The who question is ultimately answered by God. And I know that if you grew up in Sunday school, you learn Jesus is the answer to every question. But in this case, God is the answer because God is the one who providentially controls all the details, my life and yours as well. In the words of the prophet Isaiah, the Lord of hosts has sworn, as I have planned it, so shall it be, and as I have purposed, so shall it stand. That's Isaiah 14, 24. So God planned it, he purposed it, and he said, that's the way it's going to be. No questions asked. So he not only planned it, purposed it, he's also specifically mentioned in this passage and he's specifically addressed in verse 60 when Stephen cries out to God, don't hold this sin against them. So that's the who. What about the what question? Well, the what is most obviously the brutal death of an innocent man, an incident that would attract major headlines or at least an outcry on social media if it were to happen in our culture. Without being unnecessarily graphic, we need to say that death by stoning was a gruesome, horrific way to die. Gruesome and horrific. But Stephen faced it with remarkable calm and grace. The death of Stephen was fueled 
by the outrage of the council on hearing Stephen's response to their charges of blasphemy. When they say, when it says in verse 54, now when they heard these things, the council, they were enraged and ground their teeth at him. You ever been so mad that you just ground your teeth? It would almost be comic if it weren't so deadly serious to hear these guys so blinded by their anger that they're literally grinding their teeth. Recall what we've learned the past two weeks. Stephen did not defend himself as much as he turned the tables on the council and played the role of prosecutor. Just note verses 51 to 53. Here's Stephen, literally within moments of his death. And I suspect on some level he knows that he could soft-pedal this message just a little bit and walk out of there a safe man. But what does he do? You stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in heart and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit. As your fathers did, so do you. Which of the prophets did not your fathers persecute? And they killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one, whom you have now betrayed and murdered, you who received the law as delivered by angels and did not keep it. I don't know if we have a context for being in our own estimation, a good Jew, and hearing somebody say that to us. And his whole recitation of the Old Testament was leading up to this. You never got it right. You're still not getting it right. You betrayed the one that God sent and you murdered him. You who received the law as delivered by angels. To say he didn't pull any punches would be to make a crazy understatement. Their outrage leads them to condemn Stephen to death, and we don't have details to know did they take a former, formal vote of the Sanhedrin? Everybody who thinks who sh he should die, raise their hand. I don't know how it happened, or maybe they just were spontaneously overcome by this mob mentality, but whatever it was, they rushed on him, they drove him out of town, and they killed him in cold blood by stoning. You know, earlier on, not too much before this incident, the Jewish leaders had said to Pilate about Jesus, he deserves to die, but we don't have the authority to do that. Well, now, a few weeks later, that doesn't matter. The fact that they don't have the authority isn't keeping them from doing what they are determined to do, to silence this guy. Next question, when? It's a good question. We don't have an exact timeline. We don't know. As far as I can tell, I'm looking at Mike West here, it's within a couple years of Pentecost, so it wasn't too long, but if it was between a year and two years, that possibly could tell us something could suggest that the carrying out of the Lord's command in Acts 1.8, where he said, you will receive power after the Holy Ghost has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea 
and all Samaria and to utter the, most, the uttermost parts of the earth. Well, they were all still in Jerusalem. What about Judea and Samaria and the uttermost parts of the earth? Maybe the Lord, in orchestrating these events, is moving that process along in the face of uh, leaders who were kind of happy about where, where they were and they were kind of enjoying hey, we, we got growth, we got people getting saved, we got priests becoming obedient to the faith. This is pretty good. And the Lord's saying, what about Judea and Samaria and the uttermost parts of the earth? Could that be? I think it's possible. So, within a couple of years, if the martyrdom of Stephen and the resulting scattering of the believers, which we read about in the first verse of the next chapter, was not at the top of their list, or that may have su suggested that they were dragging their feet a little bit. So this could have been major pieces of God's plan to, bring, to, to begin the fulfillment of the Great Commission. Next question, when, where, excuse me, where? We've done who, what, when, now where? Well, the where is obviously Jerusalem. And that's significant if you recall Jesus' words in Luke 13. I'll turn there and read it. If you want to turn, you can. Don't need to. I, wa I, I wasn't uh, prepared far enough in advance to get the tech guys the passages so that they would show them to you. But you have Bibles. And if you don't have a Bible, there's one under the chair in front of you, somewhere close there. Well, what did Jesus say in Luke 13, verse 33? Nevertheless, I must go on my way today and tomorrow and the day following, for it cannot be that a prophet should perish away from Jerusalem. Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. How often would I have gathered your children Together as a hand gathers her brood under her wings, and you would not. So there's something about prophetic fulfillment here that this is taking place in Jerusalem. It was the place where the church was. Not, it wasn't the result of various factors kind of randomly coming together. It's where the church was. It's where the apostles were. It's where the ruling council met. met. All the pieces were in place for this horrific event. There would be an occasion for grief. We read in chapter 8, verse 2, devout men buried Stephen and made a great lamentation over him. And it would also serve as kind of the launching pad for the dispersion. They were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria. Sound familiar? That's where Jesus said they would be going. Now they're being driven there. So the where is Jerusalem? Then the why question starts getting a little harder here. And this could be answered on, on several levels. Why did this happen? Well, because of the jealousy of the Jewish rulers. Their influence was being threatened. Their power base was eroding. The people generally thought highly of the believers. We read in chapter 2, verse 47, Chapter 5, verse 13. And the growth of the church even extended, as we've said, to the priesthood, a great many of whom 
became obedient to the faith in chapter 6, verse 7. So that's part of it. They saw what they saw happening and what they weren't able to control and stop was affecting them in that they didn't want to lose their power and their influence and, and their wealth. Let's face it, they were about money. So the jealousy of the Jewish rulers. Why? Well, also because no matter what they did to try to stamp out this new cult, they could not contain it. We've already talked about that. Read through the early chapters of Acts and you'll see how clearly that's illustrated. As a believer in Jesus, as you read through those first chapters, you find yourself cheering inside as the schemes of the opponents of the gospel are frustrated time and time again. It is, after all, the unstoppable gospel. The gates of hell will not prevail against it. But the opposition would stop at nothing in their effort, efforts to squelch it. Another way of answering the why question is because of the radical obedience of the believers to their commission. Why did this happen? Because the believers were committed to the command that had been given from Jesus. Instead of being discouraged by their opponents, they rejoiced in it and prayed for even more boldness. After they were warned, after they were beaten, they rejoiced and they said, Lord, grant us even greater boldness in this preaching of the gospel. And that prayer was powerfully answered in Stephen's life. Another answer to the why question. Because Stephen was full of the Spirit, as we've already seen, and he delivered a true but scathing indictment of the council in the passage we read, the verses 51 to 53. As a result, the members of the council, in their blind rage, gave in and determined to silence the voice of truth that was personified in Stephen. So why? Because Stephen was full of the Spirit and delivered this message truly. And why? Because the enemy of the church, Satan, is on a mission to destroy us all. If you belong to Christ, he hates you. He would take you out if he could. And his tactics, now and then, have been to steal, to kill, and to destroy. We know from John 10, 20. Of course, the ultimate answer to the why question is we, we can answer that by invoking what almost has come to sound like a cliche. It was the Lord's will. It was the Lord's will, both that his son would be slain on a cross and that Stephen and others after him and thousands more even today would die for their faith. We can embrace this or we can push back against it or maybe accept it with some kind of re resignation, but it is the Lord's will. 
Well, that leaves the how question. And my response to the how question isn't a traditional response to that question because I, I'm not sure how best to respond to it. So, so here's my take on this question. It's really more related to the why of the previous question. As in, how could the Lord allow such a man as Stephen to be murdered so soon after his recognition as a deacon and the ex exercise of the powerful ministry he'd been given? Wouldn't it have been better for the church if he had lived and served for additional years and decades? We think that. We can't help but think that as we look at a man like Stephen. Similar to the kinds of questions people ask whenever someone's life is snuffed out at a time we see as way too soon. If you're old enough or if you've read enough to know about the five missionaries who were killed in Ecuador in the 1950s, Jim Elliott being uh, foremost among them, these were all guys in their 20s. And they were totally given to the gospel and to taking the gospel to unreached peoples. And they're all speared to death in a single day in the jungle. And you say, and as people said then, Lord, we don't get it. These guys were doing what you called them to do. And, and now they're all dead. Or how about David Brainerd, who died in his 20s? and many others who have died in the midst of a life given to God and committed to serving God and yet haven't lived out what we take to be their normal lifespan, their three score and 60, or in some cases three score and 20, or three score and however many. I'm thinking about Dr. Joe here. <laughs> so what about a young mom? who dies in a car crash, or a child who suffers incur in, from incurable cancer? What about a thousand other tragedies that are part of the broken world that we live in? How can this be the work and the plan of a loving God? Make it more personal. How do I deal with intense and long-lasting pain as some of our number right here have had to do? <laughs> Don't go far, Carlos, with that handheld. I may need it yet. <clears throat> All right, where was I? Stressed. How about job loss, financial reversals, especially when related to being a witness for the Lord in the work context? If that hasn't happened to you yet, or to someone you know, it probably won't be long. 
as the community believers in Jesus are targeted more and more aggressively by a culture hostile to our faith. How is this all part of God's plan? We do need to help each other to be prepared. Think about, do you know where you were on December 31st, 1999? A lot of Christians were sweating out what was going to happen at Y2K, whether the whole computer infrastructure was going to go down and there would be total chaos. There wasn't. But if you were alive then and a responsible adult, then you probably had some water set aside or some food set aside, right? That was one of the things that we as believers can do as a community to help each other be prepared. And then we didn't know. I think now we have a better idea what to expect. We just don't know how quickly to expect it to come our way. But we need to help each other. First, we must recognize that the approval and privilege that we have had as Christians in this country for the past 300 years or so is not the norm. It's not the norm today. We're in the minority worldwide. It's for most Christians... It's dangerous to, be, dangerous to be identified as a Christian. We have the Constitution. We have the history here. But if you haven't been paying attention to the news, you know that there are forces that are um, eating away at that freedom. Be prepared. The Church of Jesus Christ has experienced persecution at all times from all, sa- all sides, Jesus promised this in John 15, verse 20. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. And then we need to remember that God doesn't just allow things like this, but rather he ordains them for our good and his glory. Stoning of Stephen didn't catch God off guard. It was part of his plan to see the gospel taken to all the world. Another way to answer the how question is to note how Stephen maintained his focus throughout this episode. Notice quickly the contrast between him and his accusers in verses 55 and then 57. 55, it says of Stephen, but he, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. Where was Stephen's focus? It was upward. Keep your mind on your eyes on things above, Paul will say later in the New Testament. What about accusers? But they, verse 57, cried out with a loud voice and stopped their ears and rushed together at him. Their focus was on this guy that they just wanted to shut up. And in a scene that would almost be comic if it wasn't such such a deadly serious event, they put their hands over their ears, yell at the top of their lungs, and rush at this one guy who's telling the truth and kill him in cold blood. Why was Stephen able to do what he was able to do? Because he wasn't looking at them, he was looking into heaven. 
And what did he see in heaven? He saw Jesus standing at the right hand of God. I recently read a wonderful little book by a pastor named John Hindley, who pastors in England. The title of the book is Suffering and Singing. If you get a chance to read it or pick it up, I'd recommend it. So as I close, I'd like to share a few thoughts from that book and trust that it will encourage all who are suffering. And these are all quotes. God has sent our suffering for his sake. We do not suffer primarily because we may have sinned. We suffer because we are his. Suffering is not a mark of God's indifference toward us or his hatred of us. Suffering is a mark of his love for us. It shows that we are his. This seems utterly perverse, the author says, crooked and wrong to us. But what if the heart of the Bible and the cosmos was about the love of God being shown in bringing suffering on the one he loves most dearly? If you are a Christian and you suffer, it is because God loves you. Absorb that for a couple of seconds. God sees your suffering, he appoints it, and he loves you. You suffer for his sake. But we do not need to call the suffering itself good. Suffering cannot overcome us because we suffer for God's sake. Suffering cannot overcome us because God shows us his love in it. Suffering cannot overcome us And so we pray for it to end. The suffering is a mark of his love, but it is a temporary one. The Lord will draw you into his arms as you suffer, and he will bring you through suffering to his son. So ask him to end it. Call on your Christ to awake, to rise up, and to come to your aid. Our suffering is terrible, but it is also where our Father shows that we are his children. He shows us, and he shows the world, that he loves us like he loves Jesus, as he treats us as he treated Jesus. He will draw us to himself and make us more like his Son. Our suffering is terrible, but our suffering will not end in a funeral. It will end in a wedding. The fact that Stephen saw Jesus standing at the right hand of God brought to my mind the scene of a wedding. Because what happens in the wedding? The bridegroom is standing at the front of the church with the minister waiting for the bride. And there is Jesus in heaven waiting for part of his bride to be brought to him. The vision Stephen had is a fulfillment of that promise. Jesus said, he said in John 14, if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself that where I am, 
you may be also. The bridegroom has promised, and he will do it. He is coming. Are we ready? Let's pray. Amen, Lord. Hallelujah. Praise your name that there's no purposeless suffering in your eyes, but that you intend for it to give evidence of your love for us, of the fact that you treat us as you treated your own son. And may we be willing, as we suffer, to give that sort of testimony to those around us. Thank you, holy, heavenly bridegroom, that you have promised and that you will do it. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.